part of this this assumption that the internet never forgets is that digital culture isn't being saved by the very people who are creating it. So it, it's really on us to save our own gaming history, to save our own examples, to write about them. And I think that documentation is the only sort of way to stave off being forgotten long term. Over the past decade, games have not only become one of the commercially dominant forms of entertainment, but they have also become more and more diverse. Digital distribution has made it possible that today everyone can create and release a game. Ever since Gone Home, a game about the coming out of a teenage girl, achieved almost universal acclaim, this diversity has found its way into the mainstream as well. Today, Ellie, the hero of The Last of Us, is shown kissing another woman in the trailer for the most anticipated game of the year at one of the biggest industry events. Except this isn't completely new. Games have not become queer in 2013 or 2018. They have always been queer. An exhibition in Schwules Museum Berlin has been dedicated to uncovering the entire history and possible future of queer gaming. That exhibition was called Rainbow Arcade, and for us, this was something we immediately knew we wanted to talk about in this podcast. My name is Lara. And I'm Daniel. You're listening to Away From Keyboard, a podcast about the Berlin game scene. Rainbow Arcade opened in December 2018 and ran until May 2019. We've been there and talked to the creators of this unique look into the queer history of video games. My name is Henry Schulze, I'm the board of directors of the museum and I'm very happy to welcome all of you and to welcome all of you. Um, and I am really excited for this exhibition. Um, I actually had to tell my boss that I can't take part in a workshop so that I can guarantee to be here tonight. Um, I'm going to say a few introductory words, a bit of thank yous and then I will hand it over to those guys. Um, I think, I mean, this is the first exhibition on video games, queer history of video games worldwide ever. And I think we should appreciate that. Um, video games are by now an important cultural artifact, an important tool, and an important part of our modern society life. The video game exhibition was on the cards for um, a longer time. That is Jan Schnornberg. He's one of the people who created Rainbow Arcade, and the one who came up with the idea. The question was more like, uh, who, is, who wants to do this? And um, yeah, it just happened that I was in the office at that day, and then I did that. I was actually quite surprised that there wasn't anything like that in the United States, um, because the video game culture in the United States, the industry is much better connected. Um, 
But I think that Berlin is an international city and um, Berlin has an openness that allows projects like these to thrive and to even successfully apply for funding grants. And this certainly made it a lot easier to create this exhibition. Berlin seems to be the perfect place for queer and gaming culture coming together. Events like Talk and Play or a Maze Fest have long celebrated games outside of the commercial mainstream and often feature games by creators such as Laura McGee or Robert Yang. There are regular queer dev meetups and community events. Back when work on the exhibition started, Jan was working at Schwules Museum, the gay museum. Schwules Museum is a museum focusing completely on the LGBTQ history and culture. It opened in the 80s and was the first museum in the world dedicated to gay history. And now it's one of the first museums ever that dedicated a whole exhibition to gay gaming history. Very quickly we um, became aware that we can't really tell the entire history of queer video games because it is way too exhaustive to do so. Video games have um, the advantage that they are an immersive medium. Um, you can really create worlds with video games that grab the person who's playing the game that grabs their attention, um, that makes them identify with the um, gameplay, with the world that happens, with what happens to the character. And we have quite a few examples in the exhibition of independent games that um, plunge the player into queer roles. For example, video games that deal with the complications of passing as a trans person. But um, there are also other examples of positive uh, queer gamings, right? Yeah. For example, with Dream Daddy. <laughs> Dream Daddy is a video game where you play a hot daddy with a hot single daddy and he moves in another city with a lot of other hot single daddies and he just want, has to date all of these daddies. And it's in this world, it's like, yeah, it's just existing. It's, it, I'm not really sure if gay is even used in the game as a word. <laughs> And, of course, it can also be used to show utopias or to, to explore how, what it means to have an utopia. Of course, we wanted to talk about video games on a, in a positive and affirmative way, but, of course, we can't really act like there is not an uh, a underbelly of it. So we have a section on discrimination on Gamergate, and it was important for us to show the destructive potential of what they do, so we also have a blank wall, which is um, dedicated to all those people who decided to refrain from producing more video games or not even want to start doing so because they are afraid of the harassment. Rainbow Arcade tried to cover a lot of things and Jan didn't do all the work by himself. One of the first people that joined his team was Sarah Rudolf. Jan knew Sarah back from talks about gaming culture at events like Republika and they then joined as a curator of the exhibition early on. We um, decided the structure, what, how the exhibition would look like, what, we want to, uh, what topics we want to discuss, what um, games we want to have in there and um, wrote all the texts, which are a lot in this exhibition. It's a really, really text-heavy exhibition. But um, yeah, that's, it's been a lot more work than it sounds like right now. <laughs> Because especially games are often not really um, seen as valuable. Like, they're, they're, it's just a game. It's not, it doesn't have any value beyond having fun. And so people just throw it away and don't 
don't archive it and finding all these things and finding the stories behind it and uh, preserving them has been really hard. A lot of the early communities are no longer available on the internet, so um, they're not archived like other websites you can find on the internet archive in the Wayback Machine because um, they didn't have that many clicks and so, so they weren't seen as important and if it's not important enough we, why would we archive it and so there's a lot that is lost but there are still people who remember so so we had we had this um, amazing work from the LGBTQ game archive that um, is curated by Adrian Shaw which is another one of the curators of Rainbow Arcade and we used that as a base why is it important for you that this exhibition happened because there's nothing like it in the world until now. And we, um, we saw in the process of curating this that a lot of the history, a lot of the fights, a lot of the games, a lot of the content um, are forgotten. And that queer history is often overlooked and, and purposefully forgotten. And that video games have only recently started to be taken seriously as a cultural, uh, uh, to have cultural relevance and to really tell us something that's more than just having fun. When Jan and Sarah started researching the history of LGBTQ games, they found one website to be the primary online resource early on, the LGBTQ Game Archive. Founded by Adrian Shaw, the Plain website presents a collection of every example of game creators from the LGBTQ community or queer fictional characters they could find. From the murder mystery game Caper in the Castron, released in 1989, in which you play the lesbian detective Trekker McDyke, to the homoerotic subtext in modern big-budget blockbusters. When Jan and Sarah got in contact with Adrian, she was intrigued by the idea and quickly became a part of the team. Video game exhibits have been occurring more and more in recent years, but a lot of them have been focused more on mainstream game history, sort of the kinds of games that most people, even if they don't play games all the time, know about. That is Adrian Shaw, professor at Temple University and founder of the LGBTQ Game Archive. I don't know. A lot of them take the form of like a historical mainstream view of games. And so I think that the more specialized histories is just something that games hasn't dealt with yet and game museums haven't dealt with yet. Um, in addition to that, there have been, you know, smaller exhibits of queer games, but most of them are organized around indie queer designers, so people who are currently making games, um, showcasing their games, and those have taken place in various different locations all over the world. Um, but I think the combination of game history and queer history is something that could only happen now, in part because of the research I've done as part of the LGBTQ game archive. I mean, when that project launched or became public anyway in 2016, that kind of rich history just didn't exist on LGBTQ topics and games. And I think the, and it, we're still uncovering new games from the 80s and 90s through that project. So I think that's part of it too, is that we're in a particularly good moment for reflecting on um, what LGBTQ game history looks like. And that's another aspect that was pioneered in Berlin. 
just as Schwules Museum was the first museum for queer history, the Computerspiele Museum was the world's first permanent exhibition for interactive entertainment culture. With Rainbow Arcade, both of those seemingly separated worlds came together. Curating it into a space and turning it into a narrative for an exhibit makes it more accessible to more people, right? If you go to the LGBTQ game archive and you know the names of specific games or you're looking for specific kinds of characters, you can find that. But you can't really see the story of LGBTQ game history. And the archive itself has focused on games themselves, whereas the exhibit allows us the space to talk about designers, it allows us to talk about LGBTQ gaming communities, um, it deals with issues of harassment, and I think that that it takes a much more all-encompassing view. I mean, the LGBTQ game archive, for copyright reasons, we can't host games, so we have videos and screenshots that people can see, but if you want to actually go play the games, you have to go find them on your own, and I think being able to intermix the the history and the background and the information about games and sort of telling that story while also giving people a place to do some more hands-on play is something that you need that physical space to do. You can't even do it in sort of a more traditional publication. Like it's something that only a physical space would actually allow for. Um, before I hand the mic finally over to them, I want to uh, leave you with three anecdotes which I, for me also show me that why this history, why this narrative, why this exhibition is so important. Um, I guess it comes as no surprise that I like video games. Um, and I mean, there's always this like really cheesy joke of like, I'm a gamer, it's a really terrible pun. Um, and video games has always been part of my life and the life of people around me. And it can be used in a really lot of different ways. Where I think video games, uh, especially also important for queer people, is I have to think of a friend of mine. And for him, video games became such an important part of his life because that was uh, a place where he could escape to, where he could be whoever he wanted to be, where he could create his own adventures. And video games were less for, were a tool for him to cope with his trauma, with his experiences. Mostly, video games are about shooting men in the face, sometimes they are about women shooting men in the face. Anna Anthropy wrote in her 2012 book Rise of the Video Game Zinsters. There's a video game about a dyke who convinces her girlfriend to stop drinking. Mainstream gamer culture by and large does not know about this game, she continues. That game was made by herself. Because she had to make that game herself. Video games have come a long way from fancy coin-swallowing slot machines to one of the biggest mainstream entertainment markets. While reaching more and more people, they also become more diverse, because, well, diversity sells if your audience is diverse enough. But it's definitely not just characters in big action spectacles like Cassandra or Alexios in Assassin's Creed Odyssey or Ellie in The Last of Us that break new ground. 
What really surprised me during the process was how many video games were developed in the early 90s that actually were in a way progressive. Of course, today we would say oh, it's a bit crude how they approached um, LGBT realities characters in a way. But on the other hand, it's not like they were, um, they were earnest in their portrayal. And the question that I had was, okay, what does it really mean for our society if we just forget so many things about our digital heritage? Of course, video games were always more on the fringe than, for example, TV shows. But um, it makes you really think about how we all remember the, the culture, the media we grew up with. We saw in the process of curating this that a lot of the history, a lot of the fights, a lot of the games, a lot of the content are forgotten. And that we um, keep having the same fights over and over again. We find the same stories in the games from the early 80s that we find now. And there's always this, um, this moment that everyone's so excited that it's finally happening whenever uh, queer content is in games. And it's been there for a long time. And... Um, We have to honor the people that fought for uh, for this and uh, for the people that endured a lot of um, hate and discrimination for it, and that um, yeah, the work doesn't can't be forgotten, and we um, want to preserve it, and we want to yeah, we want to show it to a lot of people so they can be inspired maybe to to do something um, too and to learn about the history and. Um, so we don't have to keep making the same thing over and over again. I think really the depth and the extent of the history, that it's so much and that things really keep on repeating themselves, that we've the same topics, the same fights we find in today's games have been there for 40 years and that's really, that's something. <laughs> Now that Rainbow Arcade is closed, what's left is a book collecting the research of the exhibition. The 150 pages thick catalogue contains the entire exhibition as well as a number of personal issues and notes by queer game creators. But the team behind Rainbow Arcade doesn't want this to be the last you've heard of them. Berlin might have just been the first of many locations where the queer gaming history might take over a physical space. We're hoping to make to to make it a traveling exhibit. Um, we're still working on the details of that, what that would look like. Finding museums with the space to uh, to do some, even if it's just some version of it, right? People can always swap out what the playable exhibits are. Um, people can always change what specific examples are used. Each each time it moved, it, people could add examples to it. I mean, we were, <laughs> at a certain point, our designer just made a stop because we were going to keep adding each new example we could come up with to the section six um, because, you know, new news kept coming, new things kept happening. I mean, at the, the weekend we opened, um, Sonic Fox won the Esports Player of the Year award. And it was like, but... <laughs> How do we add this to the exhibit right now? Can we pin it to the wall? <laughs> Maybe put it on the door on the way out. Um, but it's one of those things where like LGBTQ history is LGBTQ gaming history is 
always happening, right? There are always, there's always a new example. There's always the next thing. Um, and so if it were able to travel, it could reflect that a little bit and potentially. And one thing that I've goal for, for my own research for the LGBTQ game archive specifically is reflect more country specific LGBTQ game histories. Like I, I'm hoping more people can find games that aren't published in English or aren't from uh, Japan and North America, which are the vast majority of the games in the archive from the eighties and nineties that are queer. I mean, I, I'm sure that they exist somewhere and that as the, as the exhibit travels, perhaps people can add those um, from their own collections to it. It's a common phrase to say the internet doesn't forget, mostly as a warning not to put embarrassing stuff online. And this common knowledge needs to the question, why? Why is a physical exhibition even important when we have the internet archiving everything for us? Well, because the internet actually does forget quite a lot of things. This is a problem projects like Rainbow Arcade encounter during their research. Many small websites, niche interest forums and community-created archives of games were lost over time. The internet doesn't archive itself all on its own. After all, that is the most important point about the Rainbow Arcade. Jan, Sarah and Adrian brought the history that existed in the digital space back into the real world, even if only for a couple of months. Someone has to actively do the work of saving, curating and presenting that history. Rainbow Arcade was only the first attempt. It shouldn't be the last. And it hopefully isn't. Part of this, this assumption that the internet never forgets is that digital culture isn't being saved by the very people who are creating it. So it, it's really on us to save our own gaming history, to save our own examples, to write about them. And I think that documentation is the only sort of way to stave off being forgotten long term. And I think that people have been excited enough by the LGBTQ game archive that I hope that that's encouraging them to mark and document their own queer gaming histories. Thanks to Jan, Sarah and Adrian, not only for talking to us, but also for putting so much work into Rainbow Arcade. Maybe this podcast can be a part of documenting the history of queer gaming culture. If you want to make sure that you don't miss any future episodes we're working on, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts by searching for AFK Berlin. If you want to support future episodes of Away From Keyboard, you can go to patreon.com slash afkberlin and become a subscriber. For $5 per episode, you will get access to longer interviews from our episodes. And if you like our show and want to share stories about the Berlin game scene, please recommend us to your friends or leave a positive rating on Apple Podcasts. AFK is produced by Lara Keilbart and Daniel Ziegner. The music is by Almut Schwacke. Thanks for listening. 
See you around. around.